Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm so glad you guys are here to worship King Jesus with us. My name is Gavin Johnson. I serve this local church as one of our pastors. And uh, we have a lot to celebrate this morning. Thank you for being in the room. The Huskers have disappointed us one more time, but Jesus Christ never will. So this is where we go to worship. This is where our worship goes alone. Grab your Bibles, head to Luke chapter 9, because we are in week 25 of our slow study through the Gospel of Luke. We have another year to go uh, to get through the book. I don't know about you guys, but I've actually enjoyed going at a slower clip. It allows us to sort of dive into some more details and and take a look at some some aspects and some uh, insights that maybe normally we would just skip over if we were going a little bit quicker. And so this morning from today's text, I want to preach a sermon that I have titled Majesty on the Mountain and in the Mess. Majesty on the Mountain and in the mess. In today's text, we're introduced to a very important Bible word that we only see three times in the New Testament. It's a word that I hope becomes a part of your vocabulary as you leave here this morning, because that's a central theme of this text and what we're looking at today. And that word is the word majesty, majesty. It was interesting. I was studying this passage last week in preparation for today's sermon. Uh, And as I did, I I lost uh, focus. I clicked over to social media Uh, as we often do when we are getting distracted. And I saw the announcement that Queen Elizabeth had died. And I read the statement from the family. It said, you know, the royal family wishes uh, to let you know that Her Majesty, the Queen, has died. And I thought, there's that word. I was just geeking out on that word, uh, thinking about how we don't often use it. And here it is. I'm seeing it in front of me. Her Majesty, the Queen. Well, what exactly does that word mean, Majesty. Well, the Greek word that is translated in Luke 9 into the word majesty is the Greek word megaliotis, megaliotis. And uh, you should probably pick up audibly the first part of that word is mega. What does mega mean? It means big. It means powerful. Uh, My youngest son will be nine in a couple weeks. He has an inordinate amount of Nerf guns, a collection that occupies most of my basement. Uh, But he has one Nerf gun that's called the Mega. And the Mega stands out from all the other Nerf guns as being the most powerful, the most preeminent of all the Nerf guns. And uh, that's fitting because Mega means powerful and prominent and preeminent. And so when we we refer to the Queen as Her Majesty... What are we talking about? We're talking about the the bigness of her reign, the vastness of her authority and her rule. It's her bigness. And so, too, when the New Testament talks about Jesus' majesty, his megaliotis, it's referring to his, his bigness, his greatness, his power, his splendor. Jesus' majesty is something that we can observe, something that he reveals to us from time to time. In fact, I want you to think back over your own life, over your own story, and answer this question. Where have you experienced the majesty of Jesus? In other words, when in your life have you had a sense of his bigness, of his power? Uh, Maybe it was in a worship concert when you were with thousands of people singing with one unified voice to your favorite worship band. Maybe it was at a a Christian conference where the, the preaching was powerful and you just had a palpable sense of God's presence as the word was preached. Maybe it's been in nature. Uh, I've, I've gotten to summit a, a number of 14,000-foot mountains in, in Colorado, and every time I do and I look out at the lesser mountains in the valleys below, I'm struck 
by the vastness of God's creation and by his majesty. In 2019, we were in northwest Wyoming with my family, and there was a new moon. We were right outside the east entrance to Yellowstone National Park on, on this ranch, and a new moon, so no moon in the sky, not a cloud in the sky, cool evening, and we looked up and saw the stars, and it was almost scary. The stars had stars, and the galaxies had galaxies, and every time you thought you were seeing them all, your eyes would adjust, and you would see more, and I was, it was almost uh, frightening. It was almost scary. I felt so small. I said, honey, we need to go inside and watch TV. I, need, I feel too small out here. But I was struck by what? The majesty, the bigness of Jesus and of his creation. I remember each one of my kids being born. And I remember seeing them face to face for the very first time and just being struck that Jesus created each one individually and uniquely and then entrusted them to the care of my wife and I. And tears came to my eyes. I was was struck by the majesty of Jesus. It was breathtaking. We might call these moments mountaintop experiences. They're when we're free from distraction, when we're exposed to immense beauty, when we've got a heightened sense of awareness of God's presence and his power. And in those moments, we get a glimpse into the majesty, the megaliotis of Jesus and his power in those environments. But this morning, I want to ask, what about when we come down from those mountains? What about when those beautiful kids are disobedient, messy, expensive, and defiant? Not that they ever get there. Some of y'all just dedicated your children. That doesn't happen, but hypothetically. Oh, good luck, someone said. What about when the, when the house is a wreck, there's bills to pay, there's financial strain, What about when there's conflict at work and the cars break down, the diagnosis comes back grim? What about those times? If we're honest, those mountaintop experiences, which we do get to experience, they're few and far between. And honestly, the mess of the valley is the common terrain. This is the terrain where we live our everyday life. Well, I want to ask you this question. What if we didn't have to escape to a spiritual retreat or a distraction-free mountaintop experience to experience the majesty of Jesus? What if Jesus wants to display his majesty in the midst of the messy? Well, in today's text, that seems to be the very point that Luke is trying to get across. Remind us of the context. Joe taught us last week about the transfiguration of Jesus. That's the uh, passage that's immediately preceding today's text. And at the transfiguration of Jesus, it's a literal and a metaphorical mountaintop experience. Peter, James, and John are on a mountain with Jesus, and on that mountain, sort of the veil of Jesus' humanity is pulled back, and they get a glimpse of Jesus and his divinity, so to speak. They see his glory on the mountain. They see his majesty on that mountaintop. It's the ultimate Christian retreat to end all Christian retreats. And so this morning, I actually want to revisit that passage, even though Joe already taught it. And I want to look at it from a slightly different angle, because later in his life, Peter, who experienced that mountaintop experience, went on to write about it some 30 years later. And he talks about how on that mountain he experienced the majesty of Jesus. But then in today's text, the very next passage, we see that Jesus comes down from the literal mountain, geographically speaking, and he comes down from the spiritual mountain, metaphorically speaking, and he walks into complete chaos. 
He comes back from the retreat. He walks off the mountain and into the mess of physical sickness, demonic oppression, prayerless disciples who are struggling with their faith. And yet, in the very same passage, as it describes this chaotic scene, we see the very word for the second time, majesty. That in the mess in, in, in the chaos of this messy scene, megaliotis, they were in awe of the megaliotis, the majesty of Jesus, both on the mountaintop and now down in the mess. And so as we look at this passage together this morning, here's my prayer. It's that we would learn to see the same. That we can see and experience the majesty of Jesus and spiritual highs of life, and that's a good thing, but we can also learn to see the majesty of Jesus and the messiness and the mundane moments of life. Because in both of these... He's there. He's working. He's with us. And through this text, I, uh, my prayer is that Jesus sort of conditions our heart, teaches us to learn to see it. So let's jump into the text. I want to do something a little bit different. If you've already found your way to Luke chapter 9 this morning, you might have a little bookmark like mine. Put your bookmark in there. Put your finger. If you're on your phone, just you'll traffic your way back to, to Luke chapter 9. I actually want to uh, take us to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is where we see Peter's later reflection on that experience. Um, and, and so 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 is where he reflects on it, where we get our first point, which is that Jesus shows his majesty on the mountain. So real quick, this is uh, Peter's retrospect of his experience that happened more than 30 years prior uh, to, to when he wrote this. He's now toward the end of his life, and he's actually reflecting back on his earthly experience with Jesus, whom he hasn't now physically seen for 30 decades. And from that context, he writes this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his megaliotis, of his majesty. When? For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, that's that, that transfiguration, and the voice was born to him by the majestic, there it is in, in adjective form, glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's interesting, this vision never faded for Peter. He saw Jesus on the mountain, he saw his majesty, and it was impressed on his soul. He experienced the Christian retreat to end all Christian retreats, seeing Jesus in his glory, hearing a direct voice from God the Father from heaven, and 30 years later, he's still recalling that spiritual high, as it were, and sharing it with others. Now, at the time of his writing, uh, Christians were facing extreme persecution. That was one of the main reasons he wrote uh, his letters to the churches, First and Second Peter. They were experiencing, experiencing trial and persecution. Peter himself was in personal danger uh, of threat uh, from enemies and, and even death. And then from that context, as he, he writes to these struggling churches, it's from there that he still recalls and draws strength from that past mountaintop experience. He's writing to encourage these brothers and sisters, hey, we don't follow fairy tales or religious folklore, but we follow reality and truth. How do I know? I saw Jesus on the mountain. I saw the heavens open up. I heard the voice of the Father speak down. I had a mountaintop experience with Jesus, which is why I know I can trust him in the valley. 
It wasn't just fairy tale or folklore or religious well-wishing, but fact and truth, grounded in word and in experience. City Light, there's no doubt that Jesus' majesty is visible on the mountaintop moments of our own faith. I think what we can learn from Peter's experience here is that there's nothing wrong with these moments. These moments can be a great grace from God. They can be a huge encouragement to our faith. We should remember them. We should draw on them. We should remember those moments when we experience God on the mountain, and we should draw from them and retell those stories. When I think back on my own story, I can think of certain, you know, proverbial mountaintop moments. I think about going to UNL. I went to Lincoln for my first two years, and I remember I was a brand new Christian, and I went into the student union on a Friday night, and I went to the Navigators college night for the very first time. And I was uh, a new Christian just a couple years earlier. I went to sort of a, a nominal Lutheran church uh, that was, was helpful, you know, and it was a, a good church. But here I walk in full of a room of college students who are on fire for Jesus. And I'm looking all around at my peers who are raising their, hand to Jesus, raising their hands to Jesus and openly talking about their faith. And for the first time since becoming a Christian just two years earlier, I felt like, I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. Like, I kind of had this closet, like, I think Jesus is real, and we should worship him and live for him, and I don't know if anyone else thinks that. I'm like, I found my people. And it felt like Jesus was right there saying, yes, I want to affirm you. you you've, you've been born again not only to, to a new faith, but also into a new family. You're surrounded by people to go hard after Jesus with. And it's one of those mountaintop moments in my story that I remember. Uh, it fortified. It bolstered my faith. Um, it might sound silly, I remember the very first time that I ever listened to a John Piper sermon on the glory of God. It stands out in my head. Early 2000s, these things called MP3s had just come out, cutting-edge technology. And my friend Tyler said, have you heard this guy, John Piper? I said, no, I've never heard of him. He said, he's a pastor in Minneapolis. You have to listen to this, uh, this sermon. And he sent me a sermon from John Piper out of Romans. I don't even remember where it was, but it was all about the glory of God. And I listened to it, and it was like holding the areas of my brain and my heart and my worship life opened up to Jesus. Like I beheld his beauty and his glory and his majesty for the first time, and I didn't know what to do about it, and so I listened to that same MP3 over and over and over and over again on my little square iPod. It was a mountaintop experience. I remember getting baptized by my mentor and friend Jack Arendt in the second row. He's still a part of our church family. Uh, I was in my young 20s, and I just remember Jack baptizing me. I still have a picture of it in my office, and I just remember that day. It was a beautiful summer day. I just remember feeling the love of the Father and such a joy as I came up out of that water, just publicly affirming that on the inside, I am washed new. I have been made new in Christ. To this day, I remember a one-sentence comment that changed my life. Uh, so another sort of mentor, friend, pastor of mine had encouraged me to pray about being a pastor. I was a, 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 an accounting student at UNO, senior year, applying for internships, going the CPA route. And uh, this mentor said, hey, I really think you need to pray about being a pastor. I thought, well, that's the dumbest thing you've ever asked me to do. I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. I, I love Jesus. I will, I'll lead in the local church. I'll lead a Bible study. I will tithe faithfully. I'm a disciple maker. I'm not a pastor. I'm an accountant, you know, or so I thought. He said, well, pray about it for a week. Well, I'd heard fasting was a thing. I'd never done it. Uh, but I thought, well, I'll try it. So for the whole week, I skipped lunch. I would eat breakfast. I'd eat dinner. But I would fast over lunch, and I would go to Memorial Park right over here, and I would take my Bible, and I would just commit that time. Jesus, tell me if I'm supposed to be a pastor. And I would thumb through verses, and a whole week went by, and I was hungry, but I never read a verse that said, you're supposed to be a pastor. And I thought, whew, 
Got that out of the way. I can tell him, you know, earnestly. I prayed about it. Jesus didn't say to be a pastor. And I went to our little college ministry that night. And this lady, uh, Brenda Whaley, came up to me. And uh, she made one little comment of, of encouragement. Uh, she said, Gavin, I think God has given you a gift of taking complex truths of Scripture and really putting them on the bottom shelf for people to understand in ways that they can apply and build up the body. I thought, well, that's really sweet, Brenda. Thank you. I had taught a couple times, and I'm walking away from her like that was nice, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> I just spent the whole week, okay, well, I don't want to be a pastor, but I want to be faithful as a Christian, and so here I go. That was a mountaintop moment for me. I can still picture it. Uh, in my mind's eye. These are, these are mountaintop moments in my story where I saw Jesus's bigness, his power, his ability to speak into me personally and powerfully in a majestic way. And I want to ask you again, what are those stories for you? When were those times in your life when, when the Bible spoke to you or a certain sermon was preached and you thought, did he read my text messages and my emails? God, is this verse in scripture written just for me? What are those moments for you that it was like Jesus sent you a direct letter in the mail? Where have you seen God protect you from disaster or even death? When you know the literal odds were against you, you should not be alive or in the state that you are in today. One of the times when Jesus felt so real to you, so close to you, that it was like he was sitting in the room with you, ministering to you directly and personally. City Light, would you file those moments away? Write them down in a journal. Tell them to your roommates or your city group or your spouse or your children. We see Jesus' majesty on the mountaintop. Now, here's the asterisk by that comment, okay? I need to qualify by saying we don't live our Christian lives jumping from spiritual high to spiritual high, chasing experiences to confirm our faith. It's not the Christian life Jesus has called us to. There's whole Christian traditions that they build whole churches and movements around that, that every worship gathering has to have more lights and more fog in the conference, the better speakers and bigger, chasing high to high to high. That is not what Jesus has called us to. But we can also, maybe in our own tradition, swing the pendulum the other way to sort of discredit those moments and fail to be thankful to Jesus for giving us those moments when he spoke to us so real and so intimately. They can be a, a gracious gift from God to bolster our faith and give us a bigger glimpse of Jesus. Jesus shows his majesty on the mountains. Now I want to jump back over to Luke 9, so head back there in your Bible. We're going to pick it up in verse 37. Luke tells us that after this mountaintop experience that Peter, James, and John, sort of the core three disciples, come back down the mountain with Jesus. If you remember the passage last week that Joe preached, they didn't want to come back down. They're like, Jesus, I got an idea. We're going to build some tents. We're going to build a little house here. We're going to call the uh, United States Postal Service and do a change of dress of, of, of address form. We're going to stay here with you. We don't want to live the Christ, leave the Christian retreat. We want to stay on the mountaintop. And Jesus says, nope, we need to go back down to the valley. And so they reluctantly but obediently follow him back down the mountain, away from the spiritual high and the geographical high, back down into the chaos of everyday life. And it's an intentional and dramatic transition that the, the gospel writer Luke takes us through. And it's, it's uh, because he wants to make our second point clear, which is this. Jesus shows his majesty in the mess. Jesus shows his majesty in the mess. We pick it up in verse 37. It says, On the next day when they had come down... From the mountain, a great crowd met him. I'm an introvert who loves the, loves the outdoors, so I'm already stressed out about this passage. Great crowd, alone on a mountain. I'll take alone on the mountain any day. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, 
I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. You can picture this scene, can't you? This man is in a desperate place. Fitting that it was parent and child dedication morning, how many parents in the room know there is no length you will not go to for the well-being of your children? If my kids need something, there is no length that, that would stop me from pursuing their, their health and their life and their well-being. And that's, that's this father. And this is his only child. He has no others. He's got this one boy in a desperate place. And this father himself is desperate. His son has been tormented by demons for years. By the way, this, this event is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We get three Gospels that all tell this story and, and in Mark's gospel, it says that the father says that the demon often throws the boy into fire. Anytime there's fire, that the demon throws him in the fire. Anytime there's water, the demon throws him into the water. And so you can picture this boy. He's probably covered in scars head to toe. He's been burned so many times. Can you imagine this man's life and this boy's life? His father, his whole life is constantly worrying, constantly just trying to keep his son alive. The son, covered in scars, head to toe, his body is bruised and tired, his soul is fatigued, and here they are together, standing before Jesus, desperate. They're in need of divine help. Now keep in mind, for Jesus, this is not a big deal. Uh, like, I don't know if you all have been tracking through the first eight chapters of Luke, but this is like standard issue day at the office of ministry for Jesus. He just calls this Tuesday, you know? Like, we've seen him. He's already casted out demons. He's healed the sick. He's multiplied food. Uh, there, there's nothing intimidating to Jesus about this situation. And yet, as we read on, we're going to see that Jesus is troubled. He's bothered. He's almost irritated. But he's not irritated or troubled that the boy is sick. It turns out it's he, he's, he's bothered, he's troubled by how the disciples have tried to help this father and son when he was away. Remember, Peter, James, and John are, were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. So it's presumably the other nine disciples that Jesus is talking to in this next scene. We go uh, pick it up in verse 40. This is still the father speaking. He says, And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, I don't know about you, but upon first reading, that feels a little harsh, doesn't it? Like, Jesus sounds like he's a little bit short with the disciples here. So far in Luke's gospel, we're used to, like, Mike Riley Jesus, like, patient, kind, you know, very paternal. All of a sudden, Bo Pelini Jesus shows up. Short fuse, hot head. What's going on here? You wicked and twisted generation, how long must I put up with you? Well, again, I think we can take a few clues from the other Gospels that give us uh, some more details about the same account. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells the disciples in this scene that this demon can only come out with prayer. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, you can't cast him out because you don't have faith. If he's telling them that this demon can only come out with prayer and with faith, and yet the demon is not coming out, what can we infer from that? That the disciples are trying to cast out the demon without praying and without faith. 
So Jesus isn't frustrated at their inability to cast out the demon. He's frustrated at how they're attempting to go about it. Their failure wasn't because they were indifferent or they weren't trying. They're trying. They're probably trying their very best. They're probably filled with very sincere compassion for this boy that's in front of them. Furthermore, they already knew that it was possible to heal the boy. If you have your Bibles open, you can go up to the beginning of chapter 9, just 30 verses earlier. It literally says that they were healing people everywhere. They were healing people everywhere. What does that mean? That means they've had plenty of ministry success. In fact, they had a pretty impressive ministry resume. They had seen past fruit. They had helped and healed many people. But it appears from our text that the problem is that they have subtly moved from faith in a God to faith in a process of past performance. They casted out demons before. Certainly they could do it again. They think to themselves, well, we've done it before, let's do what we did last time, and we will get the same result. But their confidence had drifted from faith in the person of Jesus to faith in a process of past performance. And City Light, aren't we quick to do the same thing? To replace our prayer with effort, our faith, sincere faith to self-reliance? From, from, uh, from, from the person of Jesus to programs that will get it done for us. Jesus' rebuke in verse 41 about them being twisted and faithless, by the way, the Bo Pelini comments, how long must I put up with you? He's not just being harsh. He's actually directly quoting Scripture. He's quoting directly from Deuteronomy 32. And these are good Jewish disciples. They went to Saturday school. They knew the verses. They knew what Jesus was quoting. So to us, it just sounds, why is he being impatient and rude? They knew, oh, he's quoting scripture. And what's he quoting from? By quoting from Deuteronomy 23, he's bringing their minds back to the Old Testament people of God. And by quoting the scripture, he's reminding them how quickly God's people forgot their dependency on God about how quickly they forgot how he had delivered them from their enemies, and they quickly turned to idols and their own strength. And he's drawing this connection for them, that they're no different than the Israelites who so quickly traded in faith and prayer for self and idols. And this is the messy reality. This is the, the, the valley that Jesus has come back down the mountain to find. He finds a demonized boy, a desperate dad, and nine disciples who have neglected prayer and the power of God for proven programs and are no longer looking to heaven for help. Now look at the end of verse 41. Jesus says, bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. This is one last-ditch last effort by the demon. He knows he's about to get it. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the megaliotis, there's our word, at the majesty of Jesus. There's our word again, majesty. It's the word that we saw on the mountaintop when he was away from the chaos in a beautiful transcendent environment. Up there, Jesus displayed, Peter said, his majesty, his bigness. And now down below in the chaos of sickness and demons and desperation and faithless and prayerless disciples, Jesus displayed his majesty. So it's pretty, under, pretty easy to understand how we can get a glimpse of Jesus' majesty on the mountaintop. We've already experienced it, but how do we come to see it down here? I think this father gives us a good model. 
While the disciples are frantically trying to make things happen in the mess to heal this boy, what does the father do? He simply comes to Jesus. I don't know if you noticed this, but when Jesus and the other three came back down the mountain, it wasn't the nine disciples that said, Jesus, we need you. They were still trying to make stuff happen. Instead, it's the father who comes to Jesus in the midst of the mess. What does he come with? Nothing but helplessness. He comes nothing with desperation. He even comes to Jesus with a weak faith, but he still comes to Jesus. In Mark's gospel, this is the famous story. It's this father who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's like he's being honest. Like, Jesus, I, I don't even know if you can really help. I mean, I kind of do, but you're my only hope. You're my one shot. I want to believe. I kind of believe. I don't really believe. But even help me to believe, Jesus. He comes to Jesus openly and desperately and honestly. He comes to Jesus with all the measure of faith that he can muster up, but he still comes to Jesus. And in coming to Jesus with his mess, he sees the majesty of God. I want to ask you, did you know that there's freedom in the gospel to do just that? To come to Jesus with our good and our bad, with our belief and our disbelief, with our faith and our doubts and our fears, it's interesting here when, even though Jesus corrects the disciples, there is a rebuke here. He doesn't withhold his grace. It's a picture of the gospel. What does he do? He heals the boy. He restores his mind. He restores his body. He restores his, his boyhood. He restores his humanity. He restores his dignity. He restores his future. He puts on display his majesty in the midst of the mess. It's the same majesty that Peter, James, and John saw on the mountaintop it's now on display in the mess of the valley of everyday life. And City Light, I want to ask you today in 2022, do you have eyes to see it? To see the power, the majesty of Jesus in your own life, not only when we're singing to Jesus with Ryan on Sundays, but also when your faith is weak, when you're filled with doubts, when your house is a hot mess, when work is stressful, when finances are tight, when your health is not good, when your family has conflicts. Could I ask you, rather than just trying to fix it all in your flesh, what would happen if you, like this father, brought it to Jesus? Like, literally. Like, what if you actually spent 15 minutes in the morning just praying over your mess and inviting Jesus into it? What if you prayed, like this father, Jesus, I believe, would you help my unbelief? Jesus is still displaying his majesty in the midst of our messes today. We don't have to escape our present circumstances to find it. Would you believe and have eyes to see it? Now that said, I still need to acknowledge what is maybe the uncomfortable, obvious thing. That just because we come to Jesus, can I say it? The sick kid doesn't always get healed. The finances don't always get fixed. The conflict doesn't always get resolved. Not every mess ends neat and tidy just because we hand it over to Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to this fact. Isn't it also somewhat the same uh, story for this boy in the passage? Like, yes, he's, he's healed in the moment. That is a real thing. The demon is cast out. He finds mortal relief. We assume that we don't know for sure that this boy goes on to live a full life. We assume that he lives into adulthood. But guess what? This boy is not alive today, is he? No, he's not alive. Why? That means he still died which means that he still fell victim to illness or disease or age, and he died. 
which means there has to be something even greater that this moment is pointing us to. Some greater disease that Jesus came to heal us from. Some final way that he makes his majesty known to us in the mess. And that's exactly what Jesus points us to in his final comments of this passage in verse 43. It says, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. In other words, listen up, fellas. This is important. If you're going to get one thing, get this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. What's Jesus doing here? He's giving them a glimpse into the ultimate cause of his coming. The disciples don't understand it yet. The time is not right. God doesn't even let them fully understand it is what we can infer that text to mean. But in a short time, they're going to get it. In a very short time, they're going to understand it. That Jesus' ultimate majesty wasn't displayed on the Mount of Transfiguration or in the mess of everyday life. It was displayed ultimately in its fullness on the Mount of Calvary's cross. He says that he would be delivered into the hands of his enemies. Why? To deliver us from the hands of our ultimate enemies of sin and death and hell. At the cross, Jesus entered into the ultimate mess of our lives. He was falsely accused. He was brought under bogus charges. He was declared guilty in a rigged trial. And the only sinless person in all of human history dies a sinner's death. But City Light, this death was not just a miscarriage of justice. It was an intentional substitutionary sacrifice. It was God's plan A for our salvation since the beginning of time. On that cross, on that messy Friday, Jesus didn't just face the Roman nails in the cross, but the full wrath of God and eternal punishment for our sins, and he did it for our ultimate deliverance and healing so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life and enjoy his majesty for all of eternity. I want to ask you if you trusted in that Jesus. There may be some of you in this room today who have never functionally, actually bowed your knee and trusted Jesus. I want you to see we're all like this boy and this father. We are unable to heal ourselves from our sin and its consequences. But when we come to Jesus like the boy did, like the father did, with nothing but our need, with some faith, even if it's weak, and we come to Jesus believing that Jesus can help us, that Jesus can save us, guess what? He makes us whole again. He restores us to the utmost. He forgives our sins, past, present, future. He restores a right relationship between us and God. He establishes a home in his holy heaven for us to dwell in for eternity. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you haven't given him your sins and received his forgiveness, would you do it this morning? I plead with you, come like this father and be healed through faith. In City Life, for all of us, would we come to expect to see the majesty of Jesus, yes, on the mountains, but also in the mess where we live most of our days? His majesty is there. Jesus is working. He's not a program that we can control like the disciples tried to do in this passage. He's a living person that we can come to openly and honestly with all of our mess. And whether we're on the mountaintop or in the mess of the valley, would we have eyes to see his presence, his power, and his majesty on display all around us. Let me pray. Jesus, would you give us eyes to see your majesty? Yes, in those mountaintop moments. And would you give us more 
I pray for this, the dear people of this church. Would you give them moments, even this week, when they open the Word of God and it speaks right into their situation? As we worship this, through this next song, would you give them a moment where the lyrics just strike a chord in their heart and there's a magical moment of worship where they see you and experience you. May they see your majesty on the mountain, but also in their messes. There are people in this room that I know they're literally dying of cancer. They're literally burying a, a loved one tomorrow. They're literally walking through the mess and the chaos of life. Jesus, would you meet them there? Would you give them eyes to see as they come with faith, as they surrender all of their mess to you, that you will meet them even there? And for our assurance, would you remind us of the cross, the, the ultimate mess of human history, when the only righteous man was murdered. And yet in that mess, your majesty was on display because it was the very atonement for our sin. Oh, Jesus, thank you for that gospel. Give us eyes to see you in every moment. In Christ's name we pray, amen.